Welcome to Practically Pastoring, a podcast by pastors for pastors who want to share ideas, become better shepherds, and have a good time with friends. I'm one of the hosts, Frank Gill, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My buddy all the way in Baltimore, Maryland, Jeff Simpson. What's up? Down in Sumter, South Carolina, my buddy Delmar Pete. My air condition is broke today. Mm-hmm. And together, streaming from the jewel of Tampa Bay, Safety <laughs> Harbor, Florida, Andrew Larson. Our air conditioner is also broken today. And Timothy Miller. Hey, hey, hey. Go Rays. Tim, I love your hat. I know it's a, child, a children's hat, but I still respect it. It's, so <laughs> it's great. Um, I like it. Hey, it is my son's hat. If you're watching this, you may notice that Jeff is sitting next to next to someone. And this is a very special person to Jeff because it is the father of his lovely of my wife. bride. Amy, of his bride. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Cox. I feel like even though I'm not in school in Rollsmore, I still have to call you Dr. Cox. Calling you anything else feels very disrespectful. But Dr. Cox, I'm so <laughs> glad you are here. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thanks. Good to oh, be here. Good. Um, Dr. Cox, I've been, uh, I've been married to his daughter for 15 years now, close, and I just, like last year, started calling him Dennis. <laughs> uh, Dr. Cox, I mean, tell us, like, 15 years, 15 years ago, when, um, when you first, uh, well, I guess you probably met it Jeff. It was more like 20 that. years ago. Yeah. When you first met Jeff and, and like Amy, 15. uh, your daughter yeah. showed interest in him, what were your thoughts? What, what did you think of this young man who is gracing our screen right now? <laughs> well, I, uh. I was thinking about giving him the Minnesota Multifacy Personality Inventory, a little 560-item psychological exam uh, formatted in in prison populations just to check out, you know, the really weird stuff. I've always threatened that with my daughter, to to make them take this test, you know. But when they actually showed up, Sharon had fixed uh, meatloaf. He was there for the meal. And uh, he and Sharon got talking about cooking and seasonings. And the whole thing just smoothed right out. Food, so man. We're, it's what we're does all it. good. Dr. Cox, our denomination made Tim and I take that. We did. As part of our ordination process. And that thing is insane. Yep. Yes, it is. I had to take it, too, to get out of seminary. I, I, it took me three tries, but out. I finally got out. <laughs> They're like, it's like true or false. I think my mother is a good person. <laughs> it is like that. It's, what if she wasn't, though? Yeah, but I, that, that's like what they want you. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh gosh, guys, come on. We're professionals. Hey, you know what's interesting? Uh, uh, Dr. Cox brought something up. We never talked about this. Um, the excellence of our cooking skills, personally as as men, but Jeff is actually a very excellent cook, and uh, he's he actually specializes in some unique ethnic cuisines. Um, yes. If you follow him on Instagram, sometimes he posts in his story some like unique. Peruvian dishes, which I'm impressed that you even have those ingredients up in the um, the northeast part of the oh, United no, States. No, there's a there's a lot more Peruvian ingredients here than there was in Florida or Orla- wow. even Orlando. Like there's two or three Peruvian places within like a five minute drive from my house. I have never lived this close to this much Peruvian food since I lived with my mother. <laughs> there's more there's more ingredients than Peru itself. That's awesome. Yeah, That's uh, not, maybe not, but <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, Jeff, can you uh, kind of uh, explain kind of some of the, the resume of Dr. Cox so that we can understand kind of the unique uh, wisdom and, and, and knowledge that he can, he's going to provide for us today? You just said make stuff up. <laughs> uh, well, so part of our connection happens at the church where I met Amy all those years ago. 
So my family moved to Florida and my mom got a job at a daycare at a church, Beacon Community Church, shout out to Beacon, and um, where Frank and I used to shoot potato guns. Uh, But, and I went to youth group, I was like 15 when I moved there or so, and Amy was working with my mom at the daycare, uh, my wife. So, you know, my mom was obviously uh, like like a teacher, I think, and then I think Amy was probably like an assistant or something like that with the little kids. And uh, so, you know, I went to visit mom at work, saw Amy, said, hey, she's cute. And asked my mom what she thought about her. And she was like, yeah, she seems like a nice girl. Uh, And then I think our first kind of uh, date together was homecoming. But the connection of the church is that Dennis actually planted that church. uh, And you pastored it for 12 years. Is that right? Yeah, eight, but it felt like 12. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, and so, uh, you also were the a professor at the Bible college that Frank and I went to, and most recently you've been the academic or the vice president for academic affairs affairs. So the academic Dean basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also had your own, uh, fam- would you say family counseling? No, fam- yeah. Family, fam- family marriage counseling. and family counseling. Yeah. Licensed mental health counselor is the title in Florida that they use for that like certification. And then, um, you know. I, I assume master's doctorate from USF, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. That's awesome. I think, um, so in the main portion of our discussion, um, I think a lot of us are just going to kind of ask you all of our counseling questions yes. um, that, <laughs> Please. that we are wrestling with. And we want to glean wisdom from you on that. Um, and, and if you're listening to this, just know this, we actually added Dr. Cox to the Facebook group. Um, the practically pastoring Facebook group. So if if you have like some you know pressing counseling need and and Dr. Cox has time available, he might be able to answer some of your questions in the Facebook group. If you haven't um, done so, make sure you join that. So how many years did you have your own counseling practice? Uh, about uh, thirty five. So a lot of family counseling yeah. happening. Yeah. yeah, I retired in uh, twenty fifteen when I took on the the dean's job at the college. But I've been at the college. I started the counseling service about the same time I started teaching at Trinity. And uh, and did you help start the counseling kind of program at Trinity yeah, too? Yeah, I started the counseling program there. Cool. That's awesome. So. That's awesome. Well, yeah. let's dive into some clergy cliff notes. Andrew? Cliff notes. Clergy cliff notes. Gonna see what we're, we're reading about today. From the... Internet. I don't know. That's all I got. This, this reminds me of the SNL skit where they make up the songs together. <laughs> he only had two weeks to work on it, okay? Yeah. Give, him, give the man a break. I mean, it, it, hey, it snuck up on him, man. It snuck it's, up. Been, <laughs> it's been a wild couple of weeks as a Rays fan that's taking four, five hours a night sometimes and hours and hours of you know, <laughs> you preparation. Said, you said that like game. you're playing. It's taking up like four hours of my life I get, every night. I get so nervous and I'm so he's sweating. He's texting me and he's struggling. He's he's got uncomfortable bowel movements in the <laughs> middle of the game. Like he, it, it produces very real anxiety. I I love the Rays as do like I. I love very few things on this planet. And as grateful as I am for our success this season, it is giving me anxiety. I might need to see a professional counselor if hey, you know of segue. one. Hey, hey. you know of one. Great segue. Why don't you just go for it right now and we can delve into your deepest darkest <laughs> stuff. What sins have you not confessed right now? That's what I want to hear about. Um, oh, all right, here we go. Uh, Delmar, can you get us started 
Um, I, you have a great clergy cliff note you want us to discuss right now. Yeah, clergy cliff note time. Uh, so we have in the past talked about emotional intelligence, but if we're going to be honest, we've talked about it from the stance of we read a couple books. We're not experts. We're trying to figure it out. You know, when we do read, it tells you the more you think on it, the better you can get at it. Uh, but one of the questions I have just as a clergy cliff note is how important is it for us to have that? And really, how does that aid us in counseling others? Because guilty sometimes i get a bad read on people any y'all just totally get a bad read on people like um the other day i had a woman say she called me and she said dumar i need to speak to you and i need to speak to you i need to be looking at you when i talk to you because i need to see your face and she was like i will drive to your office now and i was like okay now when you grow up in student ministry and uh mother calls you and says i need to speak to you and when i talk to you i gotta look into your face by the time she got to the office um i was uh, i was in a deep like sweat i was like i was like andrew before his, his sport games you know and uh she <laughs> she, sport games. she, she pulls me in she pulls me in the back office and i'm like i just did something really horrible and then she ends up just breaking and says, actually, it's my child and proceeds to tell me all of this heart wrenching stuff about her child. And it just really occurred to me, man, there is a level of emotional intelligence that I have to really work on because I allow myself to go to another place and got a bad read really quick. And then I know the flip side is that sometimes we don't know how we're coming across to others. So I really wanted to know just are there any things that, um, that you, Dr. Cox, could, could help us um, give us like as a tool to help us check our emotions from getting away from us or even to know how we're coming across to others. Emotional intelligence is a, is a balance of attachment and boundaries. In other words, people who are emotionally intelligent can can make connections with people. They listen well. They have empathy. They connect to the emotions of the other person. But at the same time, they keep some kind of awareness of where they are so that they don't completely identify with the other person and end up uh, ruining it just by their their own emotions bleeding into it. Uh, that's a, a balance that you, in my opinion, you basically have to learn by experience. Because on the one hand, if you're too protected, then you come across as indifferent. And if you're too connected, then you, your own emotions get tangled up in it. So uh, I think... Trying to hear what the other there's a prayer I I put in my computer on the on the screen. Lord help me to hear what they're trying to say, hmm. which is trying to get to what they're trying to get at, not just the words. Because many people, when they're emotional, uh, they use very extreme language, and sometimes it's not that bad. You know, you don't know that until you've heard. You know, you've asked some other questions and you get into it a little further. Some people are just like that and you have to. Now, that's on the first session. Most of the stress, I think all of us would probably agree, most of the stress of counseling is in that first session before you find out what it's like. Uh, now, as a pastor, you have an ad advantage that the average community counselor might not have in the sense that a lot of the people in your congregation, you already know. Mm. And you sort of have some of that figured out when they come in and start talking. But of course, you'll have strangers come into you too. And then it's like, well, I wonder what's really going on here. So coming across as as genuine without being too, uh, too emotionally uh, involved with them is really, really important. The other thing is, is asking questions well. I mean, they say, you know, when you're trying to convey to, the, especially to the first appointment, 
you're trying to convey to them both your your current your concern and your competence. They've got to know you care, but they also have to know that you know what you're doing. And so you you can't let your curiosity get the best of it. That's part of the a boundary part of it. Is that you know they start to say, well, you know, uh, we my my husband had an affair. Oh, with who? Yeah, are they in the church? Where, where did they go? What did they do? Yeah, and you start to you know the curiosity starts to kick in, and then you're asking questions you really don't need the answers to, and they start to mm. pick up that you're not really trying to solve the problem or help them vent. That's, I guess, the, that's the other side of it. It's all counseling is, is I would say, 80 to 90% listening. You're asking questions, and then you're just listening. Um, they, they need to vent. So, we so whenever I'm leaning into that conversation, um, because I hear you, sometimes somebody unloads on me, and I'm like, okay, it's very apparent that the problem's not the problem here. Um, I think that's that's something I often tell myself before I walk in a room. Whatever's going on, the problem's not probably not the problem. But are there any good, from your experience, leading questions or tips that help us mitigate through those emotions to maybe start to to chip away at the root, so that way we can minister to that? Mm-hmm. Well, it takes a while because for them to. It's very important. I mean, we go back to the uh, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is the ability to elicit trust. And the key to this is that we not be too too much of an interrogator when it comes to the mm. questions we ask and the way we ask them. Because it really, the key is that they come to the point of trusting us enough that they let it out. They volunteer it. And, and we have to be ready for that. And, and often... Uh, the best way I know of is you ask the basic questions like, you know, how can I help you? What's the problem as you see it? And and let them talk about the problem and just understand that what you you probably got was the test question or the test problem. And that maybe even the next session, it'll be before you actually hear them give you the real problem. Now, sometimes they're so upset and it's so obvious and so overwhelming to them. They just dump it right out the very first time and you you go with that. But, uh, you know, you want to ask questions, but you want to ask open-ended uh, questions that sound a lot more like a friend and a lot less like a policeman. <laughs> they get scared very easily. If, you, if anybody has, and I have, and I assume some of you have, if you've ever gone to counseling, you know how, how much courage it takes to open up. Mm-hmm. And these are all just safety mechanisms we all tend to have. And Counselors just need to know that hmm. they're just a, a normal person. I have a little funny thing about my own past is I, I, I went to seminary to, to be a, a pastor and I did not want to become a counselor. I did not want to talk to crazy people. And <laughs> I just thought that this is nuts. Who wants to talk to a nut? You know, that's just, and so I got into pastoring. I realized number one, that everybody was a little nuts and that, Eventually, I realized I was too, and so then it became something I really wanted mm. to do. And it turned out that as I pastored, teaching and counseling became my favorite activities. Mm. And I sort of settled into the idea that, hey, we're in this together. You know, you share. I'll do the best I can to give you the best advice. And it's always it's part of this thing we talk about professional boundaries is um, always let them own their problem. I'm here to help you. I'm, I, it's not my problem. Mm. 
I didn't cause it. I didn't make you sad. I'm here to help you with that. And I'll give you the very best advice I can. But then I've got, I'm going to go home and I'm going to give it to the Lord on the way home and got to let it go. And I found that if I, and here's another real key as far as I'm concerned, and that's how many sessions do you put into your calendar? When I was pastoring, I had six was just the limit. And after that, I took it home. A week? I, yeah. Six a week. Okay. And I didn't have that all that often. But of course, uh, because I also didn't have anybody to talk to about it. As a senior pastor in a small church, who do you talk to about counseling issues, you know? without violating uh, confidentiality. So, you know, I just, that was, that was my limit. And uh, when I went over it, I, and of course, as a, as a newbie, I really didn't understand that. And I really had a lot of emotional stress over it. But as I got into professional counseling, I realized that if I had somebody to talk to, which I, I did always had an associate or somebody I was doing mm -hmm. case reviews with, and we, shared it and that helped me deal with my own emotions and this comes back to how do you do it well you often don't do it on the spot you do it in between the weeks you take a look at it and you see the things and if you need to talk to somebody about it you sort of sort through it uh and prepare for the next session emotionally as well as intellectually if it's okay i'd, I'd really like to pull that thread a little because when you say you you've done up the six a week i'm going wow that's well then again i mean you are, you are, that's what you do. One of the things that I think that would help me and probably a lot of people listening is this, is there a certain routine you have or a certain prep method you have before you're going to meet with someone? Because I think sometimes in industry, the biggest fear is like, I don't know the room I'm about to walk into. I don't know that session. So like, so is there a certain place I can get my headspace, even maybe some, some good tips for me walking in that session so I'm prepared? Well, all counselors have to keep notes, as I understand pastors as well. So uh, in preparation, you know, you're getting out, you got to get their name and whatever they actually shared with you, write that down. That is when they made the appointment, they'll often share something about the problem. Write that down, get the basic, whatever that is, whatever the story is or the label is. And they often don't know what the problem is. They know where their pain is. They know what the situation oh, is. Yeah, it, what the problem is usually end up with a professional counselor being a five-digit number or a label that we send in for insurance. The key is what do, how do they see it and what are they using? Write that down and then try to, to develop a chain of questions. It usually starts with, you know, how can I help you or uh, what brought you in here today or what's the problem as you see it? And I always say as you see it mm. because... If it's a marriage problem, I'm probably going to be talking to the mate. I always try to get the other person or the other members of a family, if it's a family session. And I try to get their viewpoints. And I always assume that there's more than one viewpoint so that uh, I collect it that way. And then I start writing a list of questions that their answers might elicit. This is a, It's like a, a logic chain. They say this. It reminds me of this question. They say that. It reminds me of that question. And when I first started, I would write, literally write every question I could think of down. Now, as hmm. I went along, it got to be pretty clear that if they said a certain thing, it would trigger other questions in my mind. Um, but asking them to describe it. Here's what we're looking for. One is, 
what happened. Tell me the story of what happened. Then tell me how you feel about what happened. Then tell me what what resources do you have? Or, you know, who have you told about this? Mm. Is this something you're facing all alone? Uh, you know, what are the resources that you bring to this problem? Because I'm not going to so much give you the magic words, but I may be able to point you into some resources that'll help you deal with what can often be a very chronic or difficult problem. Uh, there are very few quick solutions. So you're you're looking for resources and you're you're trying to figure out how you can help them change the frame of reference. Most people come with a perspective of the problem that's like uh, a three by five card. That's the way they see it. it it's unsolvable. But of course, it it's they it's funny because they come in and they want you to change the problem, but they don't want to have to change themselves. Mm. And what they they tell you the story as if it is unsolvable. And as the story unfolds, it is unsolvable. So your job is to stretch their frame of reference to like an eight, eight by 10 sheet of paper, let's say, and have some other things in there that throw some other light on it and make it uh, a little bit more clear or a little bit more in perspective. And by doing that, some ideas start to pop up. Then, then there's some things that we can do. But if you can't change their perspective on the problem, if you can't get them to see it with some hope, uh, the advice you give probably isn't going to be taken. So would you say part, part of it is like, I'm trying, I mean, this has been my brief experience of helping, you know, kind of counseling with pastoral care type stuff. It's almost like I'm trying to help them to see that part of the solution that they, I need to help them broaden their perspective to see like part of the solution is, oh, me as well. Yes. Because I know that so many of times that I've had conversations with people, they have this issue and they don't see themselves as part of the solution to that issue. They, yes. they see like the other four people or whatever. So that, that, so I wanted to go back to one thing you said about taking notes. Cause I was going to bring this up. Cause I, if, if there's a couple things that I know from, I've taken, I think a premarital counseling class with you. And then of course, just. He writes his paper on premarital <laughs> sex. Which fortunately he was against it, so that was good. He was against it. Dude, that might be the moment of the show right now. Uh, so let me ask you this That's question your about opening. I gave him an A. I mean, what could I do? You know, I got an A. And hey, the <laughs> at some point I took that. So Amy and I both had signed up for that premarital counseling. It was like how to do premarital counseling, and we were dating and close to engagement at that mm -hmm. point. So I take the class. My wife drops the class and add drop weight because she had to take something else to make that, you know, that credit work. And then I think your I think Sharon came and helped you talk one day yeah, she came. in the class. So I was in the in the class with my future in-laws at Bible college. Man, it was it was fun. Uh, so uh, back to the notes thing. Uh, so when you said take notes, so I, I want to get real practical. That's what we're doing. Uh, somebody comes up to me in the hallway or in the lobby right after church says, pastor, I need to talk to you. Uh, do I, at that point say, well, do you want to step in the other room? And you know, if I, if I kind of get the sense that this is a serious thing and like, what, what do you, when I'm taking notes in that initial conversation, is that like, get my phone out and just write a few things down. So I remember later what it is when they call to make the appointment, like, what does that look like? 
Yeah, I try not to get into the, uh, I need to talk to you right now. Uh, generally, uh, part of it is managing your time and managing your practice. Yes. Managing your professional identity. Because what we're trying to get our people to do is to say, listen, I know this is important. I'm going to call him up, but I'm going to expect to have to make an appointment. Mm. You know, I'm going to, you know, make time to come in. And and now, granted, they're probably, they don't pay you any money to come in. You're, you know, the church is paying your salary, so you do it for free. That's fine. But there has to be some kind of professional identity that, uh, this is almost getting them to have skin in the game, too. Yes, okay. yes, that's part of the issue. Since they don't pay you, you want to have some commitment there, and they'll show it by making an appointment and showing up to the appointment on time. You know, coming in. So that's what that's one of the things is starting right from the very you know beginning uh, with some identity about that, and then when they are you know in there, uh, all you need if. Well, if they tell you that they want an appointment, they'll often say, well, you know, I've got, you know, you, can, you might say something uh, about, or you might ask a question about what is it about or what, you know, what is bothering, and they'll tell you something about it. Something if they broad. don't, yeah, if they don't, broad. then that's fine. You, you go with that. But uh, at some point, you've got to write down the questions that lead into giving them a chance to share their story. So you, you don't want to ask real specific questions too soon because that might divert them from what they really want to tell you uh, about their story, the, the, the broader picture, so to speak. Hmm. And a, a little while ago, you said, you know, six sessions a week. That was when you were also full-time pastoring, preaching yes. every week. Yeah. I, and just to be clear, a session is about an hour, yeah. right? Yeah. We talk about a counseling hour being 50 minutes. Right. So you can, so you can so have time, time to... in between to take, to collect your notes, file your notes. I never really thought about an appointment having that much power, you know, but basically kind of what I heard is like the appointment helps you get time to prepare. Um, it keeps you goal oriented because I can't tell you how many times somebody wants to talk to me real quick at church and we go into a room and they're talking and we're just spinning. Like if this is a, you know, we're just spinning mud. We're, we're not getting it's not anywhere. The but environment, it's, like, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things to say, it's not the time or place to, to yeah, do I really right like that. Hallway. Yeah. And the thing that I that came to my mind, just and I'm sure this has helped like for y'all too, how many times have you caught yourself in an impromptu counseling session and you're like, this thing won't end? But if you have an appointment, you're like, hey, I've got 45 minutes here or 30 minutes yeah. here. So, man, I'm going to be leveraging that in my own ministry well, a lot more. Well, I think the other thing, like what you're saying, that professional expectation is that they are now forced to take this seriously enough to take, you know, an appointment and come in at a specific time to talk about this. It's not just you said something in the sermon that reminded them of the fight they had. And so I want to talk to you about it. And now you're as the pastor, having just preached, you know, even if it was just one time on Sunday, you're, you know, you, that takes energy. And so now you're expected to just immediately walk into this room and give sage advice after you're kind of, you know, you're spent a little bit. And and those of you that preach more than once on a Sunday, even more so. So I like that idea of like, let's set the expectation that this is important enough that it needs to have its own time to happen. Yes. yes. I think so often though, the, Hey pastor, could you pray with me real quick? Quickly gets hijacked into that. What should I do? Whereas I'm not going to say to someone, Hey, make an appointment and I will pray with you. 
you know, that's, you know, I'm not going to play that card, but, but how do you tiptoe between the absolutely I'll, you know, I'll put my arm around you. I'll pray for you real quick. But then, you know, there's a church full of people in the other room and, right. you know, there's my wife and kids are in the car and I I'm happy to pray for you, but this is not the time to have this conversation. How do you say that to someone that may be on the edge about something? Well, how do you balance that? And we, we had a, a pastor at my church who, who was, um, he was known for disappearing in between services. So he just, you wouldn't see him. And the only time you would ever see him was as soon as the service started, he would come in. And as soon as the service was over, he went out a side door and back to his office. So there has wow. to be a balance, right? Where we had, where we're yeah. somehow available to people, even on a Sunday, but not so available that we feel like our time is. Yeah. Frank, you hide in the green room a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You have to, I would say, have this this boundary setting phrase uh, ready. You pray with them, do what you can, you know, but it, when you sense that this is going to get into a discussion, then you have to pull it out. Say, listen, this is too important to, to try to do here, or I don't have the time to give this what it needs. I mean, you I know, will agree with that. Appointment. Like we have what's called a next step room at our church. And I think that happens after services come in there and we'll pray with you. But sometimes people go in there and they hit you with something and you're like, this can't happen between our nine 45 and 11 o'clock service. I mean, I had a guy come in here one time and uh, he hit me with being in the military and how he goes in a trailer all day and he flies drones and he walked me through some of his story. And I'm like, he, he, he goes, how can there be good in this world when I've done this to this person and i'm like this is not gonna get resolved in the next 15 minutes so i think like having some clarity pray on the ex- real- yeah that's the let me let me pray for you real quick god <laughs> <laughs> erase Help. this guy's memory and get me out of this situation there's actually I, a thrice song about yeah. that amen yeah, oh. there, is. there is so i i love it They're just giving yeah. yourself permission to say hey I value you so much more than just being rushed right now. Can we grab coffee on Tuesday in my office? Yeah. Yeah. I like the, I like communicating it that way. Like, Hey, this is too important for me to be able to give it everything I need to give it to do this right now. Let's. And I wouldn't neglect the setting either. I think doing it in your office is the best place. Now you can do it. Sometimes you get it over coffee. There are these, these other settings you deal with that, but, you always want to come back to a professional setting because that also adds to the idea hmm. that we're taking this seriously. We're going to give it our attention. And uh, this is not face, just chit chat over coffee. Yeah, that helps. That and the, some things are too private for a Starbucks. I mean, yes. yeah. 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 Guys, this was really good. Actually, I have a question that I want to ask Dr. Cox and kind of similar about the conversation of emotional intelligence, but I'll wait to the main discussion because I think, um, this is going to flow all of that, but Jeff, you have a good discussion. I think that has to do more about ourselves as pastors and the yeah. way we process stuff. I want you to share that with the group and obviously with Dr. Cox. Well, I found an article on uh, biblicalcounseling.com, which is the association of certified biblical counselors, a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, but it was just basically a book review. Uh, there's a book by Dr. Wayne Mack, who I'm not actually familiar with called anger and stress management God's way. He differentiates between kind of selfish anger and holy anger. And, but I, I kind of want to pivot from what we've already talked about. Uh, and this, I put in the main discussion for the, you guys to, uh, 
peel the veil back for those of you listening. We have a document that we kind of look at sometimes. But um, you told me, Dennis, that I, I've heard you say on a number of occasions, and this this applies to how we deal with stress and, and anger, um, even in terms of counseling and pastoral care. You've said to me on a number of occasions that you need what you would call a good cry every, I think you've said like every six months or so. Uh, and this, when I, when I've, you know, since I've known you, you've been full-time counselor, professor, you were, the pastor was before I had met you, yeah. but I assume that's held true. So can you explain why it's important for us to deal with that? Uh, I don't know if there's like a counseling term for this, but yeah, I've heard, is. I've heard people call it shared grief or something like that. But um, can you explain to us why it's important for us to deal with that stuff? And that ties into the yeah. stress management as well. Okay. Uh, I would call it secondhand trauma. Okay. It's the trauma of listening to trauma all the time. And a lot of these people are coming in. I mean, we, we literally buy tissues in bulk for the counseling office. There isn't, wasn't a day go by. And, and uh, let me throw a little context into this. Your people are going to, if they're going to counsel, talk to you about something that's important to them, chances are they are going to cry. You want to take it as matter of factly as possible, have tissues available. But remember this, the second or third or fourth time they come, they're not going to be crying. The, mm. the tears are about the initial thing that is hitting them. And it's it, you know, it hurts that much as they bring it out to you the first time. But the second time they they're a little bit more calm about it. And by the third, they're able to talk. Now, that doesn't mean they don't cry at all. It means they don't have to cry in front of you. They have better emotional control. So you have to understand that you're there to help them express their emotions. And I usually say something is if I feel that, or they say something that makes, uh, that leads me to believe they're embarrassed by crying. I say, you know, this is the best way to get the emotional pain out, you know, but when you're hearing that all the time, it builds up. And I found that in mm -hmm. myself, I could be listening to music and I finally just decided that's what I would do. I had a particular song. I would play and it would elicit these these tears. And as I was crying, I had all these faces just flash before me, the stories, and I would just let it out, let it go. Hmm. And I, I came to be comfortable with it because I realized it was helping me to stay uh, sane and be more, I call it managing my emotions. It helps me to deal with my emotions in a way that acknowledges what I've heard as being painful, but they're not me. It's not, this isn't my life. This isn't my stories. These are stories that I have heard and I have shared in, uh, but I'm sort of giving them back to God. Now, Dr. Cox, what song was it that you would play that would trigger those emotions? Just in case Jeff ever needs to elicit <laughs> yes. those emotions in you, he could play that in the background. <laughs> I'll play it. Oh, I'm not sure I can remember the name of it, but it's by Nicole Nordeman. It's the last song on her on her uh, album that I listened to. I loved all all the songs, but that one just you just it did it. Just, yeah, she's great. She would talk about uh, the, the song talked about loss and about that's okay. We're giving it, you know, and we could see the what see the the moon when there is no roof on our our house. So I thought, well, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> If it, yeah, <laughs> if it happens, <laughs> I um, 
I um I remember I remember in one of the content classes that Dr. Craig, you said something about like, a good cry every six months. I remember also one of my campus pastors, I was having a very similar conversation about the about the weight of like everyone's sin on our shoulders and how to process that. And I think I even quoted you by saying like one of my counseling professors once said that I need to cry every few months just to process all the, the grief and the sin that my people are holding on. And one thing he said to me that was really interesting is, is he, he kind of explained it as like you have a web browser and you have a bunch of tabs open. And sometimes when you have all those tabs open, it becomes very overwhelming because you don't know where the music is coming from. You don't know where the videos are playing, the pop-ups. So like when you have all the tabs open, it becomes overwhelming. And that's when the weight and stress of the ministry becomes bearing down on you. And, And that's when you need counseling for yourself to kind of process that stuff. And he said what we need to be able to do as pastors when we're counseling is to minimize those windows and only open those windows when we're addressing that issue. And then once we're done addressing the issue, to close that window. It's when we keep all those windows open and keeping the weight on our shoulders that we become stressed out and things like that. So I guess my question is, besides having that good cry every six months or whatever and and, and kind of allowing the, the emotions of our ministry to come out, what would you recommend as good like practices to be able to not personalize the sin and the weight of the ministry that you have and like what are like I'm, I'm sure like sabbath and things like that what are good habits that we need to have in order that the weight of that ministry doesn't overcome us does that make sense yeah yeah i think so I, first thing that pops into my mind is case review try to find another pastor that you can talk to uh, about the cases now when we let me explain a little bit about what goes on we don't give names in a case review. We just talk about, I, I see this lady, you know, she's in her mid thirties, she's single, she has two kids. You give general information about it <clears throat> to this fellow pastor um, and you describe it. And then you talk about what the choices you see are for that situation or what you think you have have or should give for advice and and then open the door for the other person to give input by doing that you're 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 reminding yourself subconsciously that this isn't your problem mm. this is somebody else's and you're getting help to help them and the the whole thing is helps it tremendously and and the other thing that comes up in case review is and this is how I felt when I was talking to her or this is how I felt when he brought it up because it reminded me of something else you know, I I tell my classes, too, that I grew up in a, a home where dad got drunk and got violent at times. And how I really have a hard time with someone who comes to a session drunk. I mean, you know, I I only threatened to throw a guy out the third story window once. But I tell him I had I'm doing pretty good. I didn't actually do it. But I told him if he came in drunk again, I'd throw him out the window and. That was, you know, I said, well, that told me something about my mm. own emotions about this. And so I I am, I give boundaries to myself about who I'll see uh, who who oh, have an good. addiction. I'll, you know, there are certain situations that, that I'll do it, but then uh, I have had enough experiences where things have triggered my emotions that I know that that's not the realm I'm going to do real well in. So I generally focused on other things. Joe, that goes almost back to the emotional intelligence stuff and self-awareness that you've talked about yeah, before. Well, you, well, Dr. Cox, I mean, you just brought up something that I was actually going to wait, but I think you brought it up right now. It's perfect. 
you know, the unique thing about, you said this earlier, the unique thing about a pastor that's different than like a, a clinical counselor somewhere else is that we have a relationship with the people in our congregation. And so with that, there is some potential of real pastoral hurt and burdens that our congregation can give towards us, right? Like whether you know that a member has said something um, disparaging about you or, or you know there's been gossip and slander and there's been issues with congregants, but then those same people that in turn desire to seek counseling from you. Like, I guess my question is, and this is a genuine thing from past experiences, is how do you, or do you even counsel people who have harmed you as a congregate in your, in your ministry? How do you process that? Because on one hand, I want to pastor them and, and help them deal with their pain or their trauma or whatever they're going through. But at the same time, I have wounds dealing with the congregant that is, is, is trying to seek me for help. How, how do, how should I process that? Or is that a place where I need to replace myself because my personal relationship with that person is affected by the ability to counsel them. I would love, like, love your thoughts on that. Cause I think there's a lot of, especially like in smaller congregations where the senior pastor is, is more in step with the life of the people. Um, I feel like that that's going to happen very often. And I don't know if that's a place where I have the emotional capacity to compartmentalize, or maybe I should, I, I want to hear what you, th- what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think where they are, their words are common knowledge or they have been open in their opposition, I think you'd want to recuse yourself and just say, I'm not the person to do this. I think where where the, you have heard secondhand that they said something and it hurts your feelings, I think if you can, you know, say this is, uh, my role in this particular situation is this, and just focus on what they're sharing and try to concentrate on it and be a help to them. You know, Again, it depends on what kind of problem they have. I would have a harder time if someone insulted my kids or my wife because I'd have this deep desire to hurt them. <laughs> and that doesn't go in with my pastoral role sure. as a counselor or a preacher. And so, yeah, you have to say, all right, uh, and just to admit to them that you and, and refer them. That's the other thing, by the way, you could do yourself a favor by knowing the community around you and where resources are that you could make good referrals. You don't want to just say, I can't talk to you and I can't imagine anybody that would, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to say that you, you want to refer them to somebody you think can help them. Uh, probably not specific names, probably not threaten to throw them out a window. Either. Yeah, no, that's, it's really hard to that's go good. on from there. So, Dr. Cox, by the way, it, he did come back sober. So that was oh, good. good. That's good. Um, if it's okay with you, um, for the for like the main discussion time, moving from clergy cliff notes, like literally, we just have some random questions that we want to seek wisdom from you about. And so, if it's all right with you, th- there's there's no uh, st- uh, line of consciousness here. There might be some very random questions, but I think this first question is actually be really good because you have done this for so many years, and people like myself who have only been doing vocational ministry for a little over a decade, I, I, mostly with students, and now entering to um, uh, adult ministry. I think they're, 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 this question is actually going to be pretty encouraging for a lot of us. Is what's the and biggest Frank, difference? Quick, quick, Frank, before you just just to set the stage. Yeah. When you were uh, when you planted the church and you were doing pa- and you were in the pastorate and counseling from that position, you were in your early thirties, right? Me, you, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. So I, I just say that to say like we that's basically all of us now. Yeah, you know, exactly. asking these questions yeah, of you. I, so you I you were you were where about, we are now when Yeah. Yeah. When I was thirty four, I moved from being a pastor into being a counselor and okay. professor. Oh, that's so. next year for me. That's crazy. <laughs> um so what's the biggest difference you see in family counseling issues? Like this the 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 cases that you've seen or heard between um most like recently, like in the twenty, you know, twenty twenty, like now issues that you're seeing in your family counseling stuff versus stuff you saw back in the eighties and nineties. Like what are the biggest differences and changes that you've seen over the course of the decades that are issues now that weren't necessarily issues back then? Well, of course, uh, drugs and the prevalence of drugs has just grown and uh, it's mm. worse now than it was then. But when I was at, uh, at USF, I chose to do my master's thesis on step family communication because 75% of my counseling case back in the mid 80s was step families, some version of step mm. families. And back then you couldn't buy a Mother's Day card for a stepmother. They just didn't exist, the whole idea. In fact, I had to go to nine different churches to get the couples that I needed to interview for the thesis. So um, the whole idea of step family, of course, we were in, in the reading I did, I was told that by the turn of the century, which is 20 years ago now, uh, there'd be more children living in single and step family homes than in biological homes. And that, of course, happened even before the turn of the century. So the, the brokenness of family life and even the expectations now, uh, back then there were people grieving over their divorce and over the brokenness of the family and how do we get the kids and, and uh, technology and the, 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 I should say, the degradation of family cohesion has changed the nature of, of what people expect when they come to counseling and what they want. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's definitely a different not, ball game. It's not taboo to like no. have a step anything now. You no, know, it's, it's not taboo to have a step family, uh, and it's not taboo to have a divorce or to get divorced. Even for Christians, they don't seem to have the conscience about it that they had back in the mid '80s. Uh, so, hmm. while that opens up some doors for some frank discussions, you know that they're going to be open about now. Uh, it does make it a lot more complex because by the time they come into you, they've often already gotten involved in things that complicate the problem so badly it's it's almost un, unretrievable. Like I had a, a one person come in who was discussing whether he ought to marry this person, and because if he did, it would be the third marriage or the second marriage to her, and she was his third wife. So it, yeah, I had to write it down to even figure out just how that even worked <laughs> out, and you know that that leads me to this other thing, which is a pastor. Whatever your position on divorce and remarriage, it's going to be tested here mm. by the people that come to you. You know, they want to, they don't see the problem, and if you feel the problem or see the problem for yourself, you have to sort of iron that out. I I was forced into saying, you know, to myself and to the Lord, uh, I feel that you've called me to meet the couple where they actually are, which means I've got to, they're in there trying to keep a second marriage together. This isn't the time to lecture them about divorce from the first one, even though I think that, you know, obviously 
you know, they're suffering the consequences, but that's not the thing to bring out at that point because you're you're trying to retrieve retrieve the marriage that's there. And you, you do have to say, this is part of my role is to come in and be a healer in a situation that I did not choose and would never choose for somebody, mm-hmm. you know. Andrew, that's kind of like your stance on the premarital counseling where, you know, you want to be a little more open to uh, doing that counseling with folks who maybe are in a different place in terms of what marriage means. Absolutely. I don't think, you know, it's my primary job is not as the counselor, but as the pastor. And if someone is not a member of our church, then I'm going to treat any premarital situation very differently than if they have, you know, put themselves under the authority of our church. And so, yeah, it's, you get, you got to know, know where each, each role is. Your roles are not the same in every relationship. I got a, a question for you. This, this, I'm going to tell two stories that illustrate this question. Uh, number one is I had a guy come and uh, say to me, Hey, you know, pastor, I'd like to talk to you. We actually did set up an appointment. So I guess I was listening in some of those classes. Uh, we set up, we set up an appointment and uh, he came into my office and he told me that he had an imaginary friend and multiple personalities. And I basically in my head was like, how do I leave this office right now? Because I'm trapped in a basement office with this guy. And I was a little bit scared. Second story. Uh, it all ended well, by the way. Second story. Um, when I first became the pastor here, uh, there was a guy who walked up to me while I was uh, actually in a candidating weekend and said, hi, my name is so-and-so, and I am bipolar. And um, over the two or three years uh, following that, I drew—I think I've, I mean, at least a handful of times where he would meet with me and say something like, pastor, I feel like I want to go walk out into the middle of the highway and just end it all. What should we do? Uh, to which I responded, get your drink and we're going to the hospital. Um, so my question is, I know those are extreme examples, but what at what point should a pastor realize this is beyond my capability? I need to, and this goes back to having a relationship with some counseling center in your area, which I would recommend if you're listening to this and you're new and you're a pastor new to an area, one of the things you can do is like Google Christian counseling nearby, find a counseling center and see, you know, if you can form a relationship with them. But at what point is it beyond wise for you as just a pastor to continue to try to counsel somebody? Like, are there clinical things? What's the, is there a line? Like, how do you know? Uh, I would, that's, that's a great question uh, because you can't do everything. Uh, and pastor, points you've me. got so many different things that are on your plate as a pastor that you, you, one thing you've got to set is how much time can I devote in a week to counseling sessions? And I would set a limit. Mm. Uh, second, if you hear the word, for instance, some of these diagnoses that people will share with you, like bipolar, um, if you don't know exactly what that is and what it entails, put that down as something you're going to automatically refer. Don't wade into the weeds there because you can actually make it harder for them to see somebody else if you start to counsel them and you don't understand the problem they have. Uh, if they can give you the diagnosis or they start describing things and you don't, you know, you don't know what to do, then 
I would uh, I would refer. Second thing, if they don't seem to be in touch with reality, if they can't tell you the story and have it sound, you know, cohesive, then you should refer them because once again, that that level that's one of my levels, by the way, one of my boundaries is I didn't talk to people who got into trances or had those kind of things because I'm not trained in dealing with it. And I knew that I, my most of my trainings in communication. So I dealt with communication issues and I just told them that right at the beginning. And I usually had a Christian psychologist that I would refer to for testing, which is one of the other things that sometimes happens is you, you're, no, you're not sure what it would be. They don't know what it would be. I would refer them to somebody who may be able to help them find out. The value, I know labels are restrictive and they're sometimes misleading, but they're also helpful to focus attention. You know, someone tells you they have a personality disorder. Um, they're telling you they've got a long-term problem and you, you know right at the beginning not to expect a quick fix because this is not the kind of thing that happened over uh, a short amount of time and it's not going to go away in a short amount of time. Um, let me give you one other resource. The American Association of Christian Counselors, the AACC, has a website and a directory. Should you find, and this is another common question brought to you right after a service. I have a sister in Des Moines, Iowa. Do you know of anybody mm. she could see? Well, you, you give them the, uh, the website, aacc.org, and they can. there is a Christian counselor directory, national directory that they can, uh, and the biblical counseling may also have a directory. Yeah. And psychology can, today has some stuff too that. You yes. Could... That's, that's a big help to be able to give some help. You said it was aacc.org. Uh -huh. uh -huh. They're not a sponsor American. yet. <laughs> they're, they're pretty good. Um, I kind of want to follow up with that. You know, once we refer <laughs> someone, oftentimes it's, it's when you see them in the halls at church later, you're like, Hey, how you doing? Glad, glad you're, with someone else who's getting you help now. Um, and I'm praying for him, but I've found myself in a situation where I did refer someone a while back. They followed my advice. They went to a counselor who, um, is in my personal experience is very good. And, uh, I, I checked back in with them and later and basically it's, it's about, uh, they're a married couple and, uh, her worldview is, ha is a lot different than he thought it was when they got married. And, uh, they do individual sessions and then they do group sessions. And in the last individual session, the counselor told um, the, the man in this relationship, I really don't know what to do for you now because it looks like one of two things is going to happen with this marriage. It's going to end in divorce or you're going to end miserable or she's going to meet Jesus. Those are the three. And he's a Christian counselor. So when I asked him how he was doing and he gave me that very bleak thing I was really at a loss as this man's pastor. How do I minister to him when honestly, it seems like his professor put the death nail in his coffin of his marriage or his, uh, his counselor. Yeah, I, I have, don't think I've ever told somebody there's no hope. Now he is trying to, what he is trying to do is trying to set this person's expectations because that's part of what you do in counseling is you're not only or in the process of establishing the professional boundaries of your identity, what you can do and not do. You're also setting their expectations. 
And I've, I've often said satisfaction is a function of expectations. If you allow them to think that you have got some miracle in your back pocket and they think everything's going to be fine because they're seeing you, then and then that doesn't happen. They're going to be very devastated. So when we're starting, we try to get a realistic view of what they're telling us and to try to be realistic without being you know, hopeless or telling them, no, just you know, get rid of them. It's never going to work. We believe in miracles, you know, but and sometimes that's what mm. we're talking about here uh, is trusting God to do a miracle. And then it's a matter of, well, what can we be doing to, you know, participate with what God's doing in your mate's life? If they're seeing mm. somebody else and they're not quite sure whether they want to stay in the marriage or divorce and marry this other person, you know, there's all kinds of really sad and, and uh, tense situations that people can bring you. Um you you obviously are working with the Lord in that in that uh, framework, but you try to, to be to be honest about what is going on or what you know and what you're suggesting. But I always try to point them towards something, uh, never away. And I think that's one of the things that, as I talked to this individual, I I had been seeing him point, go do this resource, and he would do it, and she wouldn't. So finally, he just arrives there. And, uh, and I, I just try to hear him out when we talk, but yeah, it's, it's, it can be kind of frustrating because I recommended him. Um, but then I also realized that like this counselor has seen hundreds of people. So what you said, yeah, he's setting an expectation because I mean, this is not his first rodeo as well. Kind of one of the things that frustrates me is that this man, when I talk to him now about his marriage, it's almost like he's relying on the counselor's wisdom to fix their marriage. Well, maybe the counselor will say something to make her think straight, or maybe, and instead it's what you ever find that there's a over-dependency, almost like a yeah. triangling on the counselor to fix everything. Yeah. And it's generally the counselor's responsibility to try to make, to keep that from happening because that is a, mm. a strong tendency. And you're always trying to point it back to, you know, this is what you can do. This is what the things you're doing that's making it better. I'm not making it better. Um, and get them to own it. It, it. That's a real important part of uh, a good counseling relationship. The single biggest predictor of success in counseling is the relationship the counselee has with the counselor. If they trust you, if they will uh, take the advice that you give and try it out, uh, there's al always a better outcome than if they either rely on you to do everything uh, or they don't trust you at all because they don't know you. Uh, you often lose them and you lose them early if they don't know you and they don't like what you're saying. You know, you're, you're uh, not coming across as they thought you might. Uh, let, let me uh, throw something else out here. Uh, I use books a lot. I, I literally had somebody from USF come out and interview me because I do bibliotherapy, which means I, I refer books. Uh, I, it never occurred to me to do anything else. There are such good books out there. But let me give you a couple that are really, really helpful here. Uh, one is called Sacred Marriage. If you haven't read it, it's it's a really good book. And another one, uh, these are books that I use in my, in my counseling course called Marriage and Family Communication. Uh, that one is uh, Sacred Marriage. The other is uh, Seven uh, Principles for Making Marriage Work by John Gottman, G-O-T-T-M-A-N. 
he's a really good resource actually for counseling theories because he takes a very practical approach and you know, give you some helpful ideas of, of ways of talking about marital problems because the way you talk about it as a counselor uh, is a very big part of sharing your perception of the problem and changing their perception of the problem. Since you talk about it differently, you often help them to see it differently. And then they're talking about it differently, which then opens up a whole bunch of avenues for change. Dr. Cox, um, I know that there's like these times as a pastor, I know this happened a lot in student ministry, but um, sometimes someone in our church wants us to pastorally counsel someone else like their spouse or their child that maybe doesn't attend the church or maybe doesn't even necessarily um, believe on the same stuff that you believe in. And I, and I remember, I remember one thing I, I learned in your classes, like, for example, a lot of LGBT issues have evolved and changed in the DSM um, over, over the past few decades. And obviously depending on what church you go to has different perspectives on LGBT issues. And and I know, for example, there's been times when I was a student pastor where a parent would be like, please meet with my child. Maybe they're not very active in your student ministry or whatever, but they are considering um, transitioning from a boy to a girl or something, or they have um, same-sex desires and, and, and things like that. And I guess my question to you is, when you're put in a position as a pastor and a counselor to counsel someone who may or may not even necessarily want to be there, and and you now have to be set up in the position not only to counsel them, but to convince them that they, I want to say this appropriately, need counseling, if that's the, if that's the right way to say it. Um, like, what do you do in that situation? Is there a situation where you just go to the, the spouse or the parent and be like, this isn't going to work because they don't want to be here? Or is there is there a tactic that you use in those settings that you found to be particularly effective when it comes to counseling people? specifically on LGBT issues, but I'm also thinking of like uh, a couple where the, where the wife is really involved in the church and the husband is maybe a non-believer and the husband wants to get divorced and they're coming to you. Like those settings where there's someone there in the family who is not really that on board with their faith and the spouse or a parent wants you to pastor and counsel them. What do you do in those scenarios? Okay. Uh, okay. Very good question. Uh, let me try to give us direct and simple an answer as I can't. There is a little bit of a bind here because rule number one of counseling, which I give to all my introduction to counseling class students, never offer counsel unless it's asked for. Counseling people, counseling students, they often want to go out and counsel the world now that they've got this and they butt into other people's problems and tell them what they want. And that nothing, you know, nothing ever good comes out of that. Now, that said, I there's two things I try to do. One is uh, if one partner in a marriage comes in, then I'll ask them, you know, does your husband know you're coming in or your wife know you're in here? How do they feel about counseling? Often I will hear, yes, they know I'm here, but they don't want to come to counseling. And I'll ask them, would, would you mind going home and telling your mate that I asked about them and then I'd like to hear their viewpoint? And if they do that and nothing happens, then about the third week, before we get too far into this, you see, if you, you counsel one member of the, of the family or the marriage very far, you become that person's counselor and you make it harder for the other one to eventually show up. So early in the process, then I call, I get their permission 
And I call the mate and I say, as you know, your wife is coming to see me. And I was, I'm calling you to, to ask if you would be willing to come in and give your viewpoint of it so that I have a better, broader perspective of what it is that we're trying to do. And 95% of the time, they will come in. In fact, I had a guy say, Dr. Cox, it'll snow in hell before I show up in your door. <laughs> Three months later, he was there. He was there. And I said, is, is it cold? Are you feeling chilly? <laughs> no, I didn't say that. That's I'm sorry. It, I love it, it. That was a fantasy <laughs> that I was able to filter out before it actually got out. That's awesome. And, and I had this other thing happen. A mother brought her 20-year-old daughter in. Her daughter thought she was going to the dentist until she got in my room and realized I was not a dentist but a counselor. She was furious, and rightfully so. And you I mean, yeah, you took her side on it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I was actually able to get her to come back on her own. Because I asked the question, are you hurting? Would you like some help? I mean, granted, none of this is right. And, you know, your mom didn't think you would ever come in if she told you the truth. And uh, she said, yeah, I am. And over the hour, she calmed down enough to say, yeah, I guess I would like to talk to somebody. And she was willing to come in. But that that is rare. And frankly, if you are ever caught being a part of that kind of scheme, which in this case I wasn't, but if you had, uh, your credibility is gone at that point. You yeah. know, chances of ever getting a man have gone. Oh, if you're in on the Yeah, secret, if you're in yeah. on the deception. So if the parents ever tell me, you know, what do I need to do to trick her to coming in? I said, don't, don't do that. Rule number one. Dr. So. Cox, I've got a, a question as, you know, a, a pastor of a small church. I'm 37. I forgot how old I was there for a second. I think you you're know, 38. Uh, I think I heard in another podcast. Almost. Oh my God. I think. Yeah, <laughs> almost. That's right. I'm 38. Oh, like, it might be younger. I'm not sure. But anyway, this. it changes with the podcast. He somehow. has listened to our entire library. It, it depends. It. But, uh, so I... I've come across in, in the past couple of years in, in the church I was at previously where, where a, a family will, will start coming to the church and you can almost tell immediately. It's like, you know, they are, it was either go to counseling or get involved at church. That was like the line that the, <laughs> that, that the wife drew in the sand. Like we have to do something. Which one is it going to be? And maybe, you know, the husband thought there was less of a taboo about going to church than going to counseling. And so, here's this couple on the rocks and they show up and they're on their very best behavior because, you know, he doesn't want to go through something. And, and, and so, you know, and maybe it's just a little bit of the sixth sense that you develop, but you can kind of, kind of tell who those couples are. And so when, when a couple specifically is coming and you can tell that they're coming to church specifically for marriage help and they are in need of counseling, what can you do to let them know, you know, hey, you know, as a church, we're here for you. We want to minister to you. But sitting in the pew is not the same as as scheduling some sessions with an actual mental health professional, like w without just jumping right into the middle of somebody's business, but also knowing that there's a ticking time bomb. What can pastors do? to make sure people are using church as church and using counseling as counseling and not cross-pollinating the two. 
Well, one, of course, being uh, a counselor as well as a preacher, I often mention counseling resources from the pulpit uh, to see if, you know, just it's a one of the, uh, what should we say, one of the responses, one of the action steps from a particular passage. Uh, there might be a book to read or something like that. I don't necessarily mention going to counseling. <laughs> Excuse me, but often uh, they'll they're thinking of that, and so they do decide to do that. But I think opening the door there in the relationship as a pastor, see the advantage you have is that you have a chance to build a relationship that can help them bridge between that uncomfortableness they feel when they first start to finally being able to settle in on you know getting the courage, sort of borrowed courage to face their problem from your preaching. You're, you're not, you know, you're not addressing anything directly, but the fact that you're preaching, the fact that the spirit of God is, is speaking through you and is using the love and the, the community, it can often give them the courage to finally face and deal with it. Uh, I think mentioning your own help or, or resources that have helped you can somehow give them permission. You're, that's in my opinion. That's what we're at that stage of the relationship. That's our function, is to open up doors of uh, of permission and and uh, courage to step out and take that next step. Because you're right, it, this isn't this is pre counseling, is what I'd say. Coming here into a family that is uh, a community that is therapeutic in that sense, we're loving and. You know, we're all growing and you can see that other people are struggling, too. And, you know, you sort of feel that, OK, it's OK to be normal here. That will often give them the courage to step out. I wouldn't dress it directly. I mean, I wouldn't jump in too quick or too fast on it. I would take the gentle uh, approach with those because fear is a big factor. And shame. Yeah, fear and shame. Sure. Dr. Cox, thank you so much for answering all of our random questions and, and spending time with us. Um, we typically close with a random kind of question of the day, and uh, and I want you to be a part of this too. And so here's here's a question for all of us, guys. Um, uh, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do a top three. So I want you to rank them. Top three Chick-fil-A sauces. <laughs> I love how like the, the, the level of seriousness of this conversation is completely plummeted. Yeah, because I want to know if you guys <laughs> believe that honey roasted barbecue sauce is the best sauce. So well, your answer here could lead me to think you need counseling or not. That's I mean, true. If you say something like sweet sriracha, I'm going to be uh, what? Wait, really? It is a good sauce, but it's not top three. The top three are obviously Chick-fil-A sauce, barbecue, and honey mustard in that order. Oh, in that order. Ooh, what else? Whoa. What do you guys have? I'm actually Googling right now because I'm trying to think of the year. That's what I'm doing. The, the year that they botched it so bad. I'm, I'm, I'm not even going to. Oh. It was maybe three or four years ago. Do you remember when Chick-fil-A, they tried to get rid of their barbecue sauce? Oh, there was. And they, they, was, did, oh. they had like a smoked barbecue sauce. Yes, it was so bad. And there was like, probably their best commercial ever was the we, we, we are so sorry that we messed this up. We got this awful. I, there is nothing that I love more than Chick-fil-A. I, if I do a spicy chicken sandwich, I'll do some ranch, but I still have to do barbecue sauce for the Chick-fil-A fries. Right. And I, my wife and I, we have the Ziploc baggie full of condiments in our junk drawer of the refrigerator that everybody has. Yep. 
if I am doing chicken breasts on Dude, the Dude, you have a Ziploc bag. That's progress. Mine is yeah, just well, loose in there. Because you need to be able to take it out to the grill. Um, right. But, but so I will, uh, you know, one chicken breast, you can get two Chick-fil-A things of barbecue sauce, brush them. But we, we would, I, I will use the pastry brush to cover chicken breasts that are on the grill in Chick-fil-A barbecue sauce. The only answer to the question is best is Chick-fil-A barbecue sauce. The second best is the Chick-fil-A barbecue sauce that is probably a little bit different, but then they got rid of it for six months and then said, whoops, our bad, we're bringing it back. They probably just wanted us to forget how it was supposed to taste so they could change one or two expensive ingredients. And then the distant, distant third is the honey roasted barbecue sauce. But <laughs> what? So it's you all barbecue. Are, you guys all are about drunk. Barbecue you guys, sauce. I mean, I don't know okay. what you guys are talking about. Listen, well, listen. yes, that's let, a different let, conversation. Let me, let me lean in on this. <laughs> okay. No, on behalf oh, he's of leaning Frank. in. All right. I'm leaning in. All right. But seriously, I think the, the honey roasted is definitely number one. And so I'm going to affirm Frank and then I'm going to immediately affirm. make Frank upset and say, that's the only Chick-fil-A sauce that I like because my favorite sauce at Chick-fil-A is mayonnaise, oh. then ketchup, <laughs> then honey mustard, barbecue sauce. The honey roasted. Yeah, mayonnaise yeah. on the fries with the ketchup. Oh, my God. Listen, this conversation oh, this- feels to me like the conversation musicians have about Radiohead. We're all supposed to like <laughs> yeah. it, but I don't like it. You don't like any of the sauces? No, I like. Okay. The only like Chick-fil-A unique sauce that I like. That I think of. I mean, I like the barbecue sauce a lot, and I I use ranch a lot, and I use yellow mustard a lot, but that's not Chick-fil-A. Uh, when I worked at a warehouse, uh, the guy that I worked with would always put Chick-fil-A sauce with, with one packet of Texas Pete in the Chick-fil-A sauce on a sandwich. That. and it's, that's, that's good. That's good. Mm. That's really good. I, I'm, I'm down with that. One My thing mama I will does that. That in, is good. I'll throw this in, and it's not technically a sauce, but a dressing. Uh, they have the avocado ranch yes. dressing. If you're ever like, you know, what, like the three times a decade that I'm like, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to get a salad at Chick-fil-A. I just did that the, today. The yes. avocado ranch. But the avocado ranch dressing also has, has more meat. calories than a chicken sandwich. <laughs> yes, I was going to say that. <laughs> it, so, it completely defeats the purpose. No, of listen, I had a Cobb salad today with chicken nuggets in it with ranch. And I was like, I have not eaten this in a long time. And this is a great salad. Right. So ever since the episode where we talked about health and uh, Tim and I talked about counting calories, I've not been able to eat at Chick-fil-A because I have to have some kind of sauce on any Chick-fil-A anything. But the sauces are so – they double your calorie Del, income the, sometimes the on barbecue, these meals. The barbecue is only 45 calories, so it's not, it's not bad. And it's number one <gasps> on the my whole list. Thing? The, the packet, yeah. I, I also think that buffalo sauce, um, the Zesty Bar- Buffalo sauce, is actually probably pretty low-calorie. Um, I could be actually probably not. There's probably like a lot of butter in there. I only get that when I get the grilled nuggets. But listen, this is the for me the the official the statement for definitive the sauce. <laughs> definitive number three is going to be the Polynesian sauce. No one's mentioned that. That is like the There's a reason. The, oh, it's good. The Polynesian. Oh, is good. they have mastered sweet and sour sauce. Yeah. Like no, it's very. It's very so good. good. They call it yep. Polynesian because. Polynesian people approve it probably. So it's, it's so good. Uh, the second thing I think the classic barbecue sauce that they have is delicious. And I think the fact that the honey roasted barbecue sauce doesn't even come in a little tube, but it comes in a little packet or whatever, like, like instead of a tub. I mean, it's it, no one really knows about it because they think it's just a condiment like mayonnaise. It's it is the sauce. best sauce Amazing. that they have. It is 
so good. The honey um, roasted barbecue. The honey roasted barbecue. No okay, one really knows it. about it because I'll try it. you have. So sometimes it's by the main. Well, now you can't go inside, but if you ask for honey roasted barbecue. It's it comes in the little packet. It's really good. Dr. Cox, do you have any preferences when it comes to sauces? I, I feel like of all the years I've known you, this is like this question's so beneath you in terms of like <laughs> this is the most personal <laughs> question that you've ever asked this man. This is what it's like to be on our podcast. We have these. I really... am really. I am struggling to try to find a, a cogent, <laughs> worthwhile answer because I know you want wisdom, and I tell you, I was. I, I I'm going with Delmar. You know, you got the mayonnaise, you got the ketchup. See? I mean, I don't. I don't vary into the weeds at all. When I'm out there at the That's counter, right. I want standard stuff. Don't, don't make truth. me an experiment. You know? <laughs> I'm not. I mean, I always put mayo on my chicken sandwiches. I mean, mayo I like is delicious. It. But when I, it's if I'm dipping my nuggets or fries in something, honey roasted barbecue, man, it's so good. Yeah, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a yellow mustard guy, man. I like it. Hey, yeah. I used to have the light mayonnaise, but they yanked it from the um, Chick Fil A here in Sumter. They're like, we don't light mayonnaise in South Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> Down here a few years ago during like Lent, tea. they started to serve fish at Chick-fil-A. No. It was like we were like the one test market. They're like, hey, let's see if anybody will order fish during Lent. And there was only like four or five Chick-fil-A's all down in the Diocese of St. Petersburg. And I was like, this is weird. I had one chick So it's like the Chick-fil-A breading on a, you know, a white fish sandwich. It was just bizarre. Yeah, oh, and the no, barbecue man. sauce was not good on that fish sandwich. <laughs> Let me tell you that right now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on another day we can have this discussion on the value of a um, the Popeyes chicken sandwich compared to Chick Fil A, even though I think it's pretty good. But one thing that Florida has that's not in many places that no, not many people talk about is a restaurant called PDQ, mm. and they have some really good chicken sandwiches. But people dedicated to quality. Yeah, that's. I'm going to tell you right now. Means. Royal Farms, which is a gas station up here, the chicken is better than Chick Fil A or Popeyes. Well, we're Stop. we're not ready for this discussion, but what Stop. we are ready for is to encourage you all. Which to I mean, subscribe. it's not, not hard to do that, but go ahead. Subs- subscribe to our YouTube channel um, if you haven't done so. Um, it's, it, there's, there's obviously the the full episode is on there, plus clips um, broken up for a different topic, plus some bonus content. You can always go to our YouTube. Beyond that, make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. We love any kind of five-star ratings that you give us and any kind of reviews. We love that kind of stuff. If you haven't done so, like we said, Dr. Cox is in the Facebook group now. Uh, Join our Facebook group. This is where the conversation continues. We would love for you to join us as we have different conversations. And and give us your questions. If you're going through something, we want to hear about it. Um, It's it's a good time, and it's also a great place to to ask your questions. With that being said, um, thank you so much. My name is Frank Gill. I'm Jeff Simpson. I'm Delmar Pete. I'm Andrew. And I'm Timothy Miller. And next to Jeff is the amazing Dr. Cox. Thank you so much for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. And we are practically pastoring. See you next time.